Mana 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 this is social discasting welcome to social discasting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves i am brandon aka brandon hope you're well my guest is a screenwriter and a self-professed music liker and ex-teen whose obsession includes but are not limited to bobby pickett the music of weezer and rip torn please welcome connor sullivan welcome Hey, thanks for having me. I, I've never been uh, described so aptly in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to talk about some of those things. But first of all, how are you? Uh, you know, I'm doing good. I think uh, the end of the year here, I I moved recently, so I've had a second wind of living by myself and enjoying that and getting used to it. So it's it's given me something to do the last couple months, So which I've been very grateful for after <laughs> months of having nothing to do. Yeah, th- this is definitely a time where my kind of decompression or downtime, I am looking for projects. Yeah. I like to think of it as like um, healthy distractions, things that allow me to both decompress and not think about it, while also allowing me in some ways to process what this, you know, mindfuck is in the background on some yeah. level. Very easy to say these things and then difficult, another thing to figure out what that constitutes. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent the summer being like, okay, I'm just going to do a lot of writing and then, you know, I'll spend the rest of the year like smoothing it out. And then I did that and I'm now I'm at the point of like, I don't know, do I just watch every movie I watched again? Like, do I just, and which I have been doing. I've like, yeah. I'm already revisiting stuff I watched in March. What are you watching? I don't know. It's been sort of a hodgepodge. I did get obsessed with one movie that I've seen, I think, eight times, which is this Bill Forsyth movie from 1983 called Local Hero with uh, Peter Riegert and Burt Lancaster. I saw that for the first time this year. Oh, really? What'd you think? I love it. Yes. <laughs> it is so good. I love those movies, too, where it's small, comfy, charming seaside village. Yes, exactly. Love that. Uh, same here. And like... I thought the last scene of that movie was so devastating and sweet at the same time, and yes. which is just like the kind of movies I like to... Th- those are the ones I revisit the most, but I think in this year of uncertainty, having a movie as like comfy and as kind as Local Hero has really just been like, oh, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. Oh, okay, I'll watch Local Hero before I, I doze off. And it always works. It's, it's just such a beautiful little movie. It is very much a warm blanket movie. Yes, absolutely. Which is just so comforting. That's 100% my favorite genre to watch. It's the genre I'd most like to write in. Of like that sort of kind, uh, I think critic David Ehrlich called it nice core when he was reviewing <laughs> uh, Paddington Two a couple years ago. So I, I'm I'm a big fan of nice core. What other ones do you like in that genre? Um, let's see. Recently, I'm two of my favorite movies of the last decade. One was the Richard Curtis movie About Time, which I uh, like that movie a lot. I, yeah, it's really it's really great. It's really sweet, amazing soundtrack. And then um, the Irish movie John Carney Sing Street, another it's movie, so which good. Is an incredible soundtrack, and yeah, just really funny. And then just these devastating little moments. I just, I, I could watch that movie all day. Yeah, I need to rewatch that one too because I saw it when it came out and Sing Street is so well done. Yeah. And also, I do actually like his, uh, to a lesser degree, but I do like the the Keira Knightley, uh, Mark Ruffalo uh, sing-along. Uh, uh, Begin Again. Begin Again. Uh, yeah, there's some uh, magic moments in that movie. Uh, yes. The songs are incredible in Begin Again. But Sing Street, when I saw that in theaters, the movie ended and I, I, this rarely happens to me, but I almost didn't want to leave the theater. Like I was like, I have to stay here. And I think I saw it the next day. I went back like 12 hours later just to see it again. I like wanted to live in that world so badly. 
I'm deeply jealous of the rest that you saw in the theater because I didn't. But that definitely feels like one of those, God, what a magical theater experience that would have been. I think I saw it in theaters four times. I just was so in love with it. And it became a joke with some of my friends. And uh, a friend of mine, Jude, went to go see it by himself. And I guess he was thinking to himself, how funny would it be if Connor walked in? And then I did. (laughs) Like, I walked in next to him. Like, I just completely (laughs) coincidence. And uh, I got to watch him enjoy this movie, which was also wonderful. I have a a thing with that too where it's not exactly unique to me but where if i love a movie i like to show it to friends and then live vicariously through them seeing it for the first time i used to be like that but i think i had too many people be mad at me like i remember taking a friend to see synecdoche new york back in 2008 <laughs> and afterwards i'm just being like what the fuck did you make me watch and i'm like i'm sorry that's very fair that's true that movie is a masterpiece that i also hate Mm. It makes me feel so bad. I get it. I mean, I think when I saw it, I was in college and I was very much into cringe and being uncomfortable in Todd Salon's movies. And yeah. now, you know, uh, so many years later, I'm just like, I just want to feel happy and nice all the time. <laughs> so like, I can watch Sinetki and be like, oh my God, I, I this one of my favorite movies that I never want to see again. It's gone up the list for me after I saw it twice in the theater, but like hated every second, but still loved it as a quote-unquote cinephile but the master did that for me oh of course yeah (laughs) so deeply uncomfortable and i think it's aged better in my head or maybe that i just enjoy it more i think probably because of philip seymour hoffman's passing and just seeing him be philip seymour hoffman just incredible yeah there will be blood is the thing i say is my favorite movie i remember seeing that movie sitting in the theater watching how it opened and the music immediately just fucking with me (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. oh, this is heaven. Like, this is the best. You know what's funny is I don't really... I watch and appreciate all the last 15 years of Paul Thomas Anderson movies. I don't like watching any of them over again. And, I mean, I remember seeing Phantom Thread, some afternoon screening. I think I was hungover. I had been at a concert the night before. Yeah. And I fell asleep in the middle of it. And then, I like, when I woke up, I my only thought was, I don't know, he's probably mean to her or something. <laughs> there are these other masterpiece movies that i just i have no personal connection to yeah so it's tough to like give myself over to that i I have the same problem with a lot of coen brothers stuff where i'm like i get that this is wonderful but it has nothing for me personally i get that feels like once he got to there will be blood it felt like to a certain degree you know it's just like he was more and more daring you to keep watching yeah and again sometimes uh i you know like uh Inherent Vice. I watched it this year again, and I'll be like, yeah, you know what? Now I'll get it. I still don't really understand it. <laughs> that makes me feel better because I, I, I've been scared to revisit it. <laughs> yeah, I don't particularly understand it. You know, like the other day I saw Tenet. I like, I followed it, and I don't know what happened for most of it. <laughs> yeah, I, Nolan's another one for me that I just have no connection to. So I can't even judge them objectively, you know? Tenet made me realize, or maybe solidified for me, that his movies, for me, can be inherently watchable, but at the same time, they're extremely joyless. Yes, exactly, and that's, yeah, that's what's sort of kept me from, you know, again, I, I, I profess to be someone that loves movies and all types, but there are certain types of that, like, joyless masterpiece filmmaking that i'm like not for me uh no thank you yeah no it's it's very much like i mean i get it and i can appreciate it on that level but i mean i told somebody when i saw the master when it first came out i was like look i think it's fantastic but i hate it 
<laughs> yeah. I can understand it on one level, but just as turning off my brain if I can and just watching it just as a viewer, I hate it. <laughs> That's a better way to, like, discuss movies that people don't... Because I would try and blather on about, you know, the things I love about it. But I should just more be like, I love it and I hate it. Yeah. Complete respect. I get it. But also, God, no. Fuck that. <laughs> I'm good. I say that as somebody who... The first DVD I ever bought was Notting Hill. Great movie. I love that movie. I there, think I, look, there's some bad perfect. stuff. Like, the soundtrack is awful in Notting yes. Hill. And, like, some people are pretty awful to each other. But I think um, Notting Hill has the best ever scene of friends having dinner together. It's very like, good. That scene is so beautiful. And it, there's, like, some heartbreaking moments. and But, like, you really believe that that crew of people loves each other and hangs out all the time. Like, that's so rare in comedies yes. to to be able to do that so effectively. It does a lot of heavy lifting very quickly. Yes. It feels like a bit of a magic trick to be able to kind of imbue so much while in the forefront seemingly doing so little. Yeah, I mean, we really didn't need the scene of Hugh Grant wandering through the season set to Ain't No Sunshine, though. Like, that's it. That's like a bit... I, I can tell Richard <laughs> Curtis did not pick the music on that one because all of his <laughs> other music choices are so strong. Yeah. And this is just all this weird, like, pop jazz crap and it just doesn't work yeah it feels like maybe he got a note from uh working title saying you know we need we need uh, an understanding of the passage of time and it almost feels like well fucking here you go it's funny because the movies he didn't direct like that and for weddings have pretty lame soundtracks yeah and then the movies he did are like just stacked with like yeah Joni mitchell and ron sexsmith and like all these really good cuts and like it's crazy to then to go back and hear yeah ain't no sunshine playing is, <laughs> i like i always grip my teeth you know, what I say about movies sometimes is that um, certain movies, and Love Actually, I saw it when it came out, I deeply love it, and there is a level of nostalgia to it for me, having seen it when it first came out, but it's not good, but it's great. Yeah, I mean, I think most of my favorite movies fall in that category, because I like to think of, like, the scenes, like, the small moments that wreck me or make me happy, as yeah. opposed to, like, the bigger picture, because, yeah, I mean... One of my favorite movies ever is um, Amy Heckerling's follow-up to Clueless called Loser, which is... I need to see that. I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's, um, it's... Technically, it's a remake of Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Like, it beat for beat, it's the same movie. And oh, uh, there's a lot of stuff in it where it's like, you can tell a lot of compromise was happening, but there's some really lovely little moments, and they have, like, a really sweet chemistry. Their last scene together, uh, Biggs and Subari's last scene, I think is... is like so delicately acted and wonderful and people always rip on me they're like you're just like you're saying that ironically and i'm like no i genuinely am moved at the end of loser every time i watch oh, it i know exactly what movie you're talking about i have seen that i saw it when it came out but i've not seen it since and that movie i thought about it maybe like three or four years ago randomly because i was like is that Oh, that was Jimmy Simpson in that. It is Jimmy Simpson. Yeah, it's Jimmy Simpson, Zach Orth, and I, I forget the other guy. It's that they're Thomas Sadowski the, or yeah. Sadowski. Oh, that's it. Yeah, they're the evil, uh, yeah. the evil uh, roommates. Yeah. And like, in imagine in the year two thousand, Amy Heckerling followed up Clueless with a dark college dramedy where the villains are like rich kids who date rape people. That's like the pl like loser is super dark in that respect. 
I completely respect that choice. And I know they talk about stuff like this on like the Blank Check podcast, but just seeing a massive hit and then this is what I'm making with that currency or with that capital, this. And it's like, oh, that was a choice. I know. It's it's like she made this just cultural zeitgeist film and then she went into Columbia and was like, I want to remake The Apartment and I want it to feel like Patty Chayefsky's Marty, which apparently was her goal. <laughs> and like... That's incredible. And, and then Good here's a God. movie with Teenage Dirtbag as the theme song <laughs> and Andy Dick cameos and like just such a weird hodgepodge and I think it's just, there's something about it that I can't, I can't not love. I just adore it. Speaking of like romantic comedy types, please. A couple nights ago, I rewatched. I say rewatched. I, it was so long ago that I didn't even remember it, so I was like watching it the first time. But I didn't realize that Peter Weir wrote and directed Green Card with Andy McDowell and Gerard Depardieu. I didn't know that. I've never actually seen Green Card. It's pretty. It's worth it. He was nominated, by the way, for best screenplay for that. Peter Weir was got. Yes, best, that's like. It's wild. That's after Dead Poets and, yes. and, and Witness and stuff, right? You know, he's been nominated, I think it was like four or five times for director or other Oscars, but it's his only writing, like screenplay nomination. Wow. Which is yeah. wild. The backstory on that movie, too, is that he wrote it and it was like his first script he'd written of his own that he directed since The Year of Living Dangerously. Okay. So he wrote it specifically with Gerard Depardieu in mind to the point where he had a photo of Gerard Depardieu that he put like within or on his typewriter as he was writing. And he waited like a year, year and a half for De- Depardieu to be able to do the movie. Man. And it was the only actor he ever offered it to that he had in mind. And Depardieu, who by many, if not all accounts, seems like an absolute shit <laughs> in real life, which that seems to be how it goes for plenty of other actors, you know, but he is wildly charming in this movie. I mean, there's something, too. I mean, he was one of the biggest stars in Europe for God knows how long. Yeah. So, of course, he had to have that. But I, I always love that story of, like, the writer. It's so uh, romantic to the point of it being gross sometimes of, like, he had a picture of the star and he wrote yeah. it. I, that was the story John Hughes saw Molly Ringwald's headshot for The Tempest in, like, 1983 and then wrote 16 Candles the next day. Like, just, you know, crazy stories like that, which I, I'm still waiting for that. I mean, I guess <laughs> I have a picture of the guy who sings the monster match <laughs> above my, <laughs> my desk. Hey, look, our muses come in many forms, don't That's, they? Yeah. You mentioned this on a podcast before, but for Bobby Pickett, like, it truly is wild that it's the only song we annually associate with Halloween. I know. It's wild. It's it's crazy because it's kind of like any holiday thing where you, the people that try and make ones that stick, they never do. And it's always yeah. these, like, even with Christmas, you know, the, the onslaught every year of bands trying to make Christmas classics. And it's like, you know, what the the only one that's stuck in the last 30 years is Mariah Carey. Absolutely. And, the, and even that took... 15 20 years to truly like i don't think until love actually did it really you know start to really become an essential christmas song i think maybe stamping all the feelings that kind of are imbued and associated with that movie coupled with the visuals and how it makes you feel might have really i don't know maybe put that song over the top but it feels like there's like this inexplicable alchemy that just happens with some of these seminal classics like i think the touch with love actually is the sweet little moment where you find out the teachers are singing back up 
and they yes. do a couple little cuts to them. That's just such a nice little human moment that I, that's to me, that like elevates that scene and the movie. But you know, we don't have to discuss uh, the problematic nature of Love Actually. That's been yeah, done. that's fair. <laughs> that's been done everywhere else. It's also pretty obvious, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Richard Curtis is one of my favorite filmmakers. And almost every single one of his films has a, a scene in it where I'm like, huh, I'm going to have to <laughs> dance around this. All right. You might be Dick Curtis in this particular instance. Good God. <laughs> yeah, Dick Curtis wrote this scene. Richard Curtis <laughs> yeah. wrote the rest of the film. Yeah, this is a Dick Dick Curtis joint. The uh, But um, I know we talked about Bobby Pickett, but one of your other if it's like obsessions, maybe is a fair word, is somebody that I'm fascinated by and have been for a long time. Ripped Horn. Yes. <laughs> I, miss, I miss him so much. God, R.I.P., truly. Uh, R.I.P., Rip. Uh, that was an unintentional joke. The, you know what the best thing, because uh, I, I had this Twitter account, Ripped Horn Outlives, yes. um, which people can see, but uh, the best thing about that account is it almost obliterated every boring hack comedy Twitter's R.I.P., Rip Torn joke. You like, own that, we, yeah. We, we kind of like, I, I, we, it was me, but like, you know, I feel like I was able to take that dumb shit away for a bit so but for that i'm eternally happy i hope i hope elmerle rip torn jr is grateful as well no well i appreciate it somebody who just unintentionally made the joke and then then like almost sighed to myself that that happened subconsciously or otherwise but <laughs> yeah my, the thing that i'm most fascinated by and he's got some a couple of like nominees for this like in theory trying to murder someone on film Oh, like the Norman Mailer. Yeah, the, yeah. the Mailer thing, which which he had long contended that, no, I wasn't on anything. I just didn't sleep for five days, which is fascinating. But the thing that, that I'm most fascinated by is the fact that in 2010, he drunkenly broke into a bank thinking <laughs> yes. it was his house. I thought it was his house. <laughs> and, and what's amazing, the, the most fascinating thing to me, though, is that if it were anyone else, but uh, in theory, anyone else but Rip Torn, somebody breaking into a bank like hammered while also carrying an unlicensed firearm you would think that they're just trying to rob the bank but with them they were just like it's ripped torn it's i it, what i love about him and it's something that will probably disappear in the next couple generations is we'll never have someone that liquored up and like and full of rage and anger like i did every one of his performances you could like smell the scotch you know yes. like it's that's what uh you know it's it's is we're kind of missing we don't need a lot of those guys but it is nice to have one or two of them around you know where like a genuine happy smile is still has an undercurrent of what are you up to exactly yeah I yes. mean that's like the the moments in larry sanders where <sighs> he's amazing, he really man. breaks like uh i mean uh my i think that his best performance is the episode arthur after hours where he's just drunkenly singing karaoke using yes. hank's karaoke machine yeah that's just like a tour de force of like hurt and and just yeah misplaced anger it's just it's one of those just amazing episodes of tv i think he he was like properly weaponized in that show and in a way that that you know i i never in retrospect never knew he could be but, you know, I, it's funny, I, I saw him in a movie a couple nights ago, I, wa I watched for the first time, The Cincinnati Kid. I've never Steve seen McQueen. that. Oh, wow. It's pretty good. Minimally, they do some really interesting stuff with lighting in the movie, and it's well shot. But I'm not a huge, admittedly, like, McQueen fan. Yeah. I feel like 
I don't know. Maybe it's just I just missed the boat on him or something. But for me, when I watch him, I don't find him particularly compelling. I see him and I'm like, I can see it, but I don't really doesn't really work for me. Yeah, I you know, I'm I'm the same way. I'm sure it'll change in time because I I, I watched it was a bullet and I wasn't very into it. But also, I'm yeah. a big Robert Evans fan. And yes. in the kid stays in the picture, you hear about how Steve McQueen stole Ally McGraw from him. Yeah. So I'm always going to have a bias against uh, <laughs> McQueen for taking the kid's girlfriend, the kid's wife, actually. That's yeah. No, he. I mean, look, look, McQueen had look. He had BDE energy. I'll give mm-hmm. him that. And fair and fair enough. You know, like um, I might watch in a couple of days, just out of curiosity. The there's a documentary on it, which I imagine is probably way better than the actual movie. But his Le Mans movie that was like a labor of love because he was a big uh, race car driver and I think considered like a genuinely talented one. Huh. Uh, but there's a documentary about it that's really interesting that I, I, I don't remember the name, but it's worth watching. Um, but, you know, like, I don't know, like McQueen to me, eh, you know. I, I get it, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah, I so no, I, I I agree. I mean, until until I see the thing that like blows my mind, and then yeah. all of a sudden I'm obsessed with him. For whatever reason, my brain goes Steve McQueen or Charles Bronson, and I'm way more Bronson than the McQueen. My thing is, I've just never been an action guy. Yeah. So like, I've always been like melancholy rom com territory, even as a kid. So I I always found action movies very boring. I feel like there's a a point in my life though where I'll be more content and I'll all of a sudden like yeah really want to watch all the Death Wish movies. I maybe seen the first one, but it's like for those I'm like I I know what those are. Yeah, I'm good. I don't need to see that, and I certainly don't need to see the Bruce Willis remake. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. Bruce Willis is really just turned into. He just seems like he's like no, I'm going to do what I've always done. For the most yeah. part, so then he's just going straight to VOD now, which is sh- kind of shocking to me. Yeah, I mean, what's the last time he really tried? Maybe Moonrise Kingdom. Like, uh, yeah, because he he's pretty he's pretty keyed into that one, and it was kind of refreshing. Like, oh, he's back, and then he never did anything again. <laughs> yeah, he definitely is kind of in a way like Sandlery. You know, like Sandler will do heavy lifting when he wants to, and he's get, and he's good. Like, Uncut Gems, he is fucking fantastic in it. Yeah. You know, but then he's just like, you know, I have my wheelhouse, and that works for me, and I'll just go back to that. I will defend the last few years of Sandler comedies because he remembered that he shouldn't be playing a rich guy. Because the problem with that dark era is he was always a guy in a huge mansion. And, like, as in grown-ups and just go with it. Like, he was always, like, this rich guy with a hot wife and click, like, all this stuff. And now, like, uh, he made this movie a couple years ago uh, that Robert Smigel wrote and directed called The Week Of, which I think is a lovely little movie. It's I need good. to watch that. I know exactly which one you're talking about. It's really it's sweet good. and it's really funny. And I also think uh, there are sections of Sandy Wexler that are just hysterical. Yeah. Like, there's – and I think it's uh, – I don't know what happened, but he just started trying again. And then p- another thing people don't – I think got lost in the shuffle before Netflix was – was kind of seen as a, a titan for movies, but the Meyerowitz stories, the it's Noah great. Bombach yes. film, is so good. And him and Stiller have that fight scene together that's just, it's like one of the best things either of them have ever done. Going back to his wheelhouse, his movies are funny. Like, I laughed more at Hubie Halloween this year than anything. 
Oh yeah, I mean that was. I think that's in my top ten. I uh, it is so funny. The, just just the stupid running gag of him being scared of everything he sees. <laughs> it's just such a classic <laughs> dumb Sandler bit. And he, again, he was keyed into that movie, and it was so nice. Like, oh, here we go. Like, my guy's back. <laughs> that you know, and and you have Ray Liotta, who's just like, I don't know if he knows he was in a movie. Uh, <laughs> Which I'm very okay with, like, but he's great. Ray Liotta is sorely underutilized in comedy because he's such a good heavy. Yeah, and like I wrote a, a movie, this a rom com set at a funeral home a couple years ago, and there was a I needed like a stern dad. To, so I guess I did do this once, but I all I could <laughs> think of was Ray Liotta. I was like, Ray Liotta has to play this dad because it's like just he's the only one that looks so miserable at his surroundings and you believe it like in the in the yes him saying there's this goof coming huey halloween like <laughs> huey dubois I'm like oh this guy he's he knows what he is too he also is very good in uh the jody hill seth rogan movie observant report yes because he I really i do too some people hate it and i kind of get it and there's some rough stuff in it but <laughs> Um, well, it's miserable, but it's, it's great. It's a very miserable movie. But l- there's the scene where Leona just screams at him in the in like the <laughs> yeah. police station. That's just so good. For the first time, like I don't know, like a month or two ago, I saw something wild, which I just never oh, seen before. I love it. I it's unbelievable. Un- it. Like I, it, it may be one of my favorite movies. Like that's how much I loved it so much. And that was his first movie role, I think. That's and, and that's one of the most breathtaking introductions to a character. He literally dances through the frame. Unbelievable. And and just immediately though, I found out or read that it was his first role after watching it. Oh wow. Oh he was and, and you never would have not that you know, but you never he was fully formed. He was immediately. Yeah, absolutely. As when he when he walked when he came in, I think I might have said out loud, "Oh shit, oh this is gonna be bad." And the and the movie stops like the movie as you know yes. it stops the second yeah. he comes on screen. You know what's funny is I was um when I was a kid I uh you know there still weren't a lot of movies being made in New England where I grew up and mm-hmm. uh, the big success story were the Farrelly brothers who immediately yeah. became my favorite filmmakers as a as a kid and they still you know, worship uh, that, especially that early, the first 10 years. But Peter Farrelly would always give interviews and he was kind of like the cool dad or older brother. He would always be recommending movies and he said the best movie he'd ever seen and the movie that like made him want to really write movies was something wild, which That's is strange because it's, it's not the, his genre at all, you know? No. It's interesting to think about too, the movies that are so almost seemingly diametrically opposed to what the style of the filmmaker who was influenced by. Yeah. It's just like, what What did it? What flicked that switch for you? That's what's, uh, it's really interesting to me. It's, it's, I think, and I mean, that's why they have Jeff Daniels in Dumb and Dumber is because Peter Farrelly was so obsessed with something wild. And I think he could just see maybe just the light of how, you know, obviously that the back end of something wild is crazy, but the front end is really human and sweet and, yeah. And, and yeah, it's that warm and cozy feeling. And I, I think, you know, at least the early Farrelly's really were good at setting that kind of stuff up of like, yeah, Harry and Lloyd or um, uh, my, one of my favorites, the uh, massively underrated Outside Providence. Uh, I've not seen the movie in a while. It's it's so hard to find. I don't think you can yeah. stream it. And uh, you know, it's it's Sean a, Hattesey and Alec Baldwin. I'm, I'm glad you led with Sean Hattesey. Uh, I know. Well, yeah. hey, it's a it's a Sean Hattesey, Amy <laughs> Smart. Uh, it's a vehicle. 
Yeah. With Richard yeah. Jenkins and George Went coming up <laughs> the, the rear. Richard Jenkins is a guy where it's like, if you told me he's been making movies for 70 years, I'd believe it. Because it's uh, just like, I, I don't know a world without Richard Jenkins yeah, you know, I, I 57 watched, uh, roles. I watched The Witches of Eastwick for the first time this summer, and I was like stunned to see him. <laughs> like, whoa! I know, yeah. I'd rewatch it with uh, Ver- Veronica Cartwright playing his wife. Yeah, yeah. In that, and I'd watched it, I'd watched it before, but, you know, when I was talking about P- Peter Weir earlier... And just these kind of interesting filmographies that certain directors have. Like, dear God, Miller has a... Tr- like, he can do anything. Yeah. Like, that guy, kind of like Ang Lee, seemingly can do whatever genre they put their mind to. It, it's true, but though those guys never never really get the lighter side of the spectrum correct. Because, I mean, like, Ang Lee, I think the lightest thing he made was Taking Woodstock, which is kind of an unmitigated disaster yeah and uh so i think it's funny that it's the lighter touch is so tough for these darker filmmakers and uh although babe is pretty great yes but he didn't direct babe miller did no miller i mean well miller didn't no miller just wrote and produced babe i forget that oh did he not direct it he didn't direct he directed pig in the city which is a very bleak hellscape movie uh it's great but i've never seen it i gotta see that it's great but uh he didn't know i think they had some other one of his protégés directed babe oh okay well and he did happy feet one two oh yeah i i those are also (laughs) fucking weird right like i've never seen them i've never seen those either i was like i'm i think i'm good when they came out but (laughs) somebody asked him like would you ever make a happy feet three and i think he said like fuck no (laughs) which is amazing that's so yeah okay he oh man i was totally off for some reason i always thought he did babe well it's it's like those richard curtis movies it's like it's such a george miller movie it's just not it's not 100 percent his no that makes sense like but even like with with peter weir you know doing green card i'm like that is just so not what i'm in any way used to in my brain i always just associate him with like historical like movies about war basically yeah, because like Master and Commander is one of my favorite movies. I've never seen it. It's it's it's, it's that genre that is just like that's I've, fair. I have nothing. It's nothing for me. But I look. It is just it's a boat drama. That's what yeah. it is, and it's great. It is long and it's interesting. But I don't know. It's deeply compelling to me. I don't like boat movies unless Horatio Sands and Cuba Gooding Jr. are <laughs> yeah are on a trip. Mischief. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of like subgenres? Do you like and uh, like I like movies with like mazes in them involving mazes or I like movies with submarines for some reason. What do you or maybe these are sub sub genres, but there are any in I particular mean, that you, you know, like to get it back to local hero. My I guess my favorite subgenre is lonely person finding contentment in their surroundings or nature because okay. like local hero is, you know, Mac finds himself by falling in love with the town. One of my favorite movies of all time is Joe versus the Volcano. Which is, yeah. you know, Joe's world being opened up once he finally breaks free from his, you know, his everyday life. So it's like, if there's a movie where, so, like, a person that's wasted a lot of their life is looking up at the stars and moon and finding themselves, <laughs> I'll probably like it. Yeah. <laughs> Meg Ryan is unbelievable in that movie. Oh my god. It's, it's criminal how people don't discuss that movie, especially her performance, because... Um, all three know, of them. There's a uh, YouTube analysis of Joe vs. the Volcano, like made, I don't know, 15 years ago that I've watched maybe a hundred times. But they talk about how her performances are, she's meant to be the goddess of the earth, sun, and moon. 
and like oh my you can god really with the red see, hair yeah with the red hair and and then she even says the sunshine gets me down when she's patricia near the end i just her especially her performance as Dee, Dee the first one she disappears into that character yes and her fear in the last few scenes she has with Joe is so like heartbreaking and, and real. Like this is a, a person that's just not ready for this much excitement. And, that's amazing. Uh, I mean, I yeah, I could look, I could, I, know. I could ramble about Joe all day. That movie changed my life in a bad Garden Statey way. Of, oh like, god! I saw it and was no longer the same person. <laughs> When you hear stories like that about, like, she played the three characters, and this is what she signified, it's a fine line for me between buying into it, and I'm like, oh, that's so that's so clever. I know. Or, <laughs> that is fucking stupid. I know. I, I Again, I feel silly even saying it, because there's so many, you know, I so many video essays about here's why the irishman is about hell you're like oh shut up <laughs> just like let me let me like the irishman <laughs> like the movie um the denny villeneuve movie prisoners oh yeah from 2013 love that movie N- we'll never watch it again but i love it <laughs> that's very fair what he said was that you know the opening shot i think is them zooming in on in a forest on a tree he said that the trees signify being silent witnesses to the atrocities happening <laughs> Yeah. So when I read that, though, as much as I say it and I almost winced as I was saying the thing, when I read it, I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. Oh, that's Danny for you. I don't know where that line is, but I love his movies. I think Sicario is so fucking good. You know, it's funny, though, because, you know, you get all these essays about those moments and then you find out how many of them were just fucking accidental. Like, just to go back, but Local Hero, the last shot of Local Hero was like a studio note, like... We need this because we can't end on the shot before. And the, it's just a shot of a ringing telephone. And it makes the movie so much more poignant. Yeah. And and you, when you find out that was not intended, you're like, oh, I don't know anything. Movies are just, it's just <laughs> dumb luck. Yeah. And you can go back and sift through, but it's really just Rorschach test kind of stuff. If you told me that, like, and I'd believe this 100%. Oh, yeah. He just liked trees. And then he just retroactively gave it something you know, some something, some kind of backstory to it. I'd be like, yeah, that's fine too. But there's certain times I just like, yeah, there we go. Give me that extra layer that's absolutely meaningless, regardless of whether it has any meaning or not. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I just like the uh, the mythology of it. Of course, you know? yeah. Um. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but uh, yeah, I can talk about movies, whatever. <laughs> no, dude, I can do this all day. I love talking shop. You know, that's why I like working at Blockbuster for me. Just was like, oh, this is heaven. It I was, was so amazing. jealous of of that life uh, of working at a Blockbuster. I I, um, I never got to, but I just video store culture is still such a humongous part of my personality of just yeah. spending you know every Friday knowing I you know back as a kid knowing I was able to get two things and then my parents dreading it because they knew it would take me an hour. Like I would just like methodically roam the shelves. I just... look. I did that when I worked there. I, I it was you know like. I was such like a customer of Blockbuster that when I was hired there, the manager over multiple stores said, uh, this is the last time we're hiring a good customer because we can't afford to keep doing this. <laughs> and I don't know if I've ever felt the joy as comparable to when the movies that came out the following Tuesday, we got them Thursdays, and then we got to watch them early. Oh, like, it was yes. just like, oh, this is truly the, I will never beat this. Man, you know, do you have any video stores where you are left? Is there anything around? 
No, there was uh, there some that were holdouts. Yeah. And they lasted longer than others. And then somebody also did did one as kind of a response to the lack of them. But I don't know. Part of it, too, is just location. But yeah. it, it didn't take, unfortunately. But there's a market for it. Maybe, maybe especially with, you know, movie theaters kind of going to be regressing to some degree before they come back in some form. I mean, maybe there's a... You know, there's a market for it now. It's, it's you know, I, I there's a video store near me in Pasadena called Videotech that yeah. um, I haven't been to during COVID, which is uh, my problem. But uh, before I was going all the time and they had, it's, it's kind of a dream. The first time I went in, it was almost like stepping into a time machine because not only did all the shelves look like old video stores, but they were playing like on their TV, the forgotten Eddie Murphy, Robert De Niro movie Showtime. So oh, that like, movie, it yeah. Was, that was the thing that transported me because it wasn't like they weren't playing like Monsieur Hulot's Holiday or something yeah. like, you know, uppity. It was like, oh yeah, this would have been playing in a video store in 2002, like this boring ass comedy that doesn't work. And for some reason, that like got me so amped to be in that building. I love that. And like, yeah. and uh, this place still has like, I, it was the only place I was ever able to watch the Lost Richard Curtis movie, The Tall Guy, with Jeff Goldblum and Rowan Atkinson. I've seen that, which, and that's uh, Emma Thompson, right? Emma Thompson, yeah. They, there's a wild sex scene with Goldblum and Thompson <laughs> in that. But it's so nice to have a place like Videotech because it, I just being able to, uh, you know watch any movie i want the you know the too much choice thing is is real and so it's nice to go to a place and like yeah i don't think i would have gotten into like bill forsyth movies or uh even just you know back end deep cut movies and like getting to watch old demi stuff like uh because so much of that is just gone right now and none of these, like, um, for the most part, these streaming services are convenient for searching at all. No, no. But, What's crazy is that, you know, after Disney bought, like, Fox, a lot of the Fox titles are gone. Like, uh, my friends and I tried to watch Dutch over Thanksgiving. And it is not on – you can't even rent it on services. What they said, you know, when they bought that and then launched Disney Plus was that they were going to relegate – all but for the most part like the avatars of the world that are just these universal titles to hulu like they had said they were going to relegate the the r-rated ones specifically to hulu and yeah i don't know if they're just figuring out ways to to pump out that ip because they're they're like the most ip factory of all ip factories but i will say though that the best kind of like if any streaming service is kind of a makeshift video store in that you can discover things or happen upon things you've always been meaning to watch but just haven't at least for me hbo max is pretty fucking fantastic i agree it's probably the best one going right now i think so there's just so much stuff and it'll just be like there'll just be a title that'll pop up like the mask came up last month and you're like oh i haven't seen the mask in forever it's kind of interesting how it fits both of those things of like, oh, a movie I forgot that I hadn't seen in a long time, I forgot existed, or movies like, yeah, the other day I watched Le Samurai, which I'd always been meaning to watch. Yeah, yeah they're, um, they're, the Turner Classic Movie section is surprisingly diverse, and I was expecting just like five movies from the 70s. Yeah. But like, you know, it's it's, uh, it's pretty solid. I was really surprised just by... Just how much there was there, because I just wasn't, yeah, expecting it to that degree. But it's it's the one I return to the most, and especially when I'm looking to 
either discover something or just be reminded of something I've always been meaning to watch. It's pretty great. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm also, you know, a big fan of Canopy and, you know, yeah. the, you know, all the, the Criterion stuff. Like, but yeah, for just some like down the line, good, solid movie watching, I feel like HBO Max is the best bet, especially when like the classic section of Netflix has, you know, movies from 2003. <laughs> it's like the Italian yeah. job remake is, is a, cl- I don't even know if that's streaming, but like that's um, the But yeah, but it's that type of film. stuff. Yeah. Their, their classics are like, they're, they're classics to people born in 2001 or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, uh. Let's hear that classic song "Yellow" by Coldplay. Like, yeah, mm, yeah not 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 so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I I don't want to take too much more of your time up. But what do you want to point people toward? I know your um, Bobby air quotes Boris quote. Picket script is out there. It's great, by the way. It's Thank great. You. I, I love uh, it. Uh, well, yeah. No, I have a, a website for uh, some of my work. It's it's connorbait.com. Connorbait is just a, a term I would say for movies and music when it's like so obviously designed for me to fall in love with it so any green day song is connor bait uh, for example but i just put up a script a rom-com i wrote about uh cape cod and my brother and it's not a, a rom-com about my brother but uh, uh <laughs> hey, it kind of is it's a brotherly love rom-com yeah uh and uh it's called the townie and uh i'm gonna just uh, until you know the world's normal i just have a backlog of of stuff i've written over the years that i think every month or so i'll probably put up a new a new script maybe some other type of writing it's just it's just something to uh, instead of watching these gathered dust on my desktop it's nice <laughs> to have a place to to show what i've been doing the last few years so, yeah to have something out there to be like as much as imdb might not represent that especially with you know, screenwriting for people. It's like you can work on a thousand things, but you might have like one official credit. Yes. So yeah, yeah I can imagine to have it out there to be like, you see, there are things and this is my work. Right. It's weird. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I spent like last year working on a, on one thing for about six or seven months that, uh, you know, I, I'm not allowed to put on the site and yeah. like, you, you know, it's and I follow like the John Hughes style of writing which is like i want to write as many things as i can and just you know explore all these different aspects of things so i I, you know i end up with two or three scripts a year that essentially go nowhere because i just they're just something i had to get out yeah so you know i'm always editing they're not just first drafts or anything i've (laughs) never but uh you know i i always do spring cleaning of everything but yeah it's weird because yeah you're right You, you only get like one credit and meanwhile, there, there are people that have 20, 30, 40 scripts in their arsenal, and like we don't know what any of them are. And so I, I it's say, weird because – yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying you can be deeply productive but still not have anything like represented as quote-unquote official just by the nature of how like it feels like it's a miracle to get a movie made, period. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And I've, you know, I, I've, I'm still a periphery guy. Like I've gotten some chances and I've gotten some, some opportunities, but it's still so impossible. I mean, obviously right now it's, it's more than impossible, yeah. uh, you know, unless you have, you know, Disney money behind you, but, uh, <laughs> you, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very weird time, especially to be movie focused as a writer, because, there will always be animated shows for TV people to, you know, 
try and get staffed on. But, you know, when you're trying to make stuff on your own, it's, yeah, there's almost next to nothing until you have a major success. Yeah, I I can't imagine. So that, anyways, that's why I'm just putting up full-length scripts that uh, people in Los Angeles already don't like reading (laughs) (laughs) on on my site. The Bobby Pickett, it's great. So I highly recommend reading that, and I'm definitely going to check out Townies. So yeah, thank you, dude. Thank you. This is oh great. yeah, no, thanks for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Please wear a mask. That's all I got. <laughs> Stay safe. Bye.